Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akash Rafi. Today is June 15, 2020, and I'm speaking with Catherine Burns, who is a historian of medicine and public health at the Witts Institute for Social and Economic Research at the University of Witzwaterstrand. Thank you for joining us, Kath. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. We're recording this conversation during the annual commemoration of the 1976 Soweto uprising. How are the continuing legacies of apartheid playing out in South Africa in this epidemic? Yes, tomorrow is the in fact day that the whole country pauses to remember the huge uprising of young people, mainly high school students, but also college and university students, beginning in an urban conurbation which was in those days largely a ghetto surrounded by um, almost the armed encampment of Johannesburg, the city that had been set up for a much more affluent lifestyle for the tiny minority of white South Africans. And right in the middle on the southwestern side of the city was this huge urban conurbation where many more people on much smaller pieces of land were forced together mainly there to serve the laboring needs of the, the bigger city, controlled by essentially white capital. And in 1976, young people who had been plotting and thinking and trying to find ways for over a decade to address this form of gross inequality in the wake of people like Nelson Mandela being imprisoned uh, 15 years before on Robben Island and most of the uh, avenues for peaceful protests being shut off by the South African police state at the time, they erupted into a passionate defense of their freedom and they took to the streets facing down a very heavily armed police as well as the South African army. And they unleashed a series of very important forms of public consciousness and of rebuttal and of public courage against the state that drew the attention of the world. That kind of courage and that aspiration for equality has not been fully realized in post-apartheid South Africa. The legal uh, system of inequality that they were opposing has been dismantled systematically. And we've had nearly 30 years since then to address the many, many ways in which that system seeped into everyday life, not least being people's living conditions their access to dignity, their access to justice, their access to equality before the law. And there have been many achievements, I have to tell you. But in many ways, the long, long history of colonial power, segregation and apartheid still bears down very heavily on the bodies of black South Africans. They still occupy the uh, forms of labor that are the most arduous and the least recompensed. Although there is a small and growing black elite and black middle class, this in no way has drawn up the majority of South Africans into the forms of labor and the forms of sociability and life that they strive for. And so at moments like this, when we face a huge crisis in health and in resources, people who are living in ghetto conditions, who have very poor access to water, who rely on informal jobs or who have very precarious employment and whose bodies are already carrying the heavy burden of stigmatized labor, of heavy labor, of forms of work that take people into dangerous conditions. They are the ones that are the most exposed to COVID-19. They are the least able to isolate from other people. 
They often do the cleaning and service work on behalf of wealthier citizens who can isolate and keep social distance. And they also face a series of comorbidities and health challenges that put them at greater risk. So it's actually the generation of 76 people who were, you know, in their teens and their early 20s then, who are now the older adults of our community and who in fact are at greatest risk of developing very serious infections and health burdens as a result of this epidemic. And this is the challenge that the young people of South Africa between the ages again of 16 and 24 are realizing. And it's one of the reasons that people are taking to the streets here as well, and also drawing energy and succor from the uh, courage and the energy of people in places like the United States. South Africa has been one of the country's hardest hit by the HIV AIDS epidemic. How has the experience of that epidemic affected the response to COVID-19 in South Africa? There's been a tremendous link between the responses to the two. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, before the world was really aware of this growing epidemic, which became a pandemic and which South Africa ultimately suffered the, the heaviest burden of, uh, we were also in the middle of our last massive uh, legal, civil and social eruption against the apartheid regime. And it was incredibly uh, stressful, very sad and very traumatic that Nelson Mandela, the first democratically elected president of this country, had to face the reality of HIV AIDS in the first few months of his inauguration and his presidency. By 1996, when he had been president for less than two years, it was already well established in scientific literature and in sentinel surveys and in evidence that came from clinics and in observational evidence that South Africa was in the grip of an epidemic. And the response of the Nelson Mandela cabinet and government was complex. They were just like we now are sitting in a moment of COVID-19 and having in a way, seeing through a glass darkly, understanding only partial facts, trying to thread together cause and effect. In Nelson Mandela's first year and a half in office, he had to face a series of emergency decisions. And just like now, when we are looking at an epidemic in its first phase with COVID-19, he and his cabinet ministers had to often make decisions drawing on the best available signs and their knowledge of politics, of culture and society, and the economy and ethics to make the best possible decision. The first series of decisions that he and his colleagues made were to attempt to get rid of and address the stigma that came with HIV AIDS, and to try and draw whatever resources they could to dealing with the suffering uh, of people living with uh, full-blown AIDS in the absence of effective treatment. By the time his presidency ended, there were actually very, very split fault lines that had emerged across the country. The enduring link between racism and stigma in the body and in health pushed their way to the surface. And his next, his successor, who had been his deputy as head of state, Thabo Mbeki, really, really struggled in particular with the link between race, the body, sexuality, and HIV AIDS. In South Africa, HIV AIDS affected um, the heterosexual community as much as it did the gay and lesbian community. And the face 
of suffering in HIV AIDS was overwhelmingly borne by black South African women. And the mother to child infection route and the link between various kinds of breastfeeding cultures and HIV AIDS transmission fell extremely heavily upon the majority of South Africans. It was inexpressibly painful. And in the second phase of South Africa's democracy under Thabo Mbeki, he entered into a period of AIDS denialism in which he rejected the scientific orthodoxies and he tried to draw around him a community of discredited largely uh, scientists, mainly from the North, which was particularly ironic given his commitment to African solutions for African problems. And he, in fact, began to intervene in scientific decision-making around HIV-AIDS and in treatment provision and in the rollout of antiretrovirals as they began to emerge on the scene. And the huge civic unrest that this caused and the need for people to create a massive treatment action campaign, including some very, very key leaders of his own party who had to actually face up to him and had to call attention of the country to his misinformation and to his misguided ideas, really resulted in an enormous eruption across South Africa and resulted in the first constitutional court case finding against the new South African government. And the government was forced to backtrack at the time on their refusal to draw in antiretroviral treatment. And within three years after the court judgment, South Africa had rolled out the largest antiretroviral treatment in the world. This drew in NGOs, philanthropic organizations, scientific partners from across the world, and many very painful lessons were learned. On the one hand, there was enormous sharing, there was enormous beneficence and courage and mutuality and solidarity. And this included people such as Dr. Fauci in the United States, who was already a very prominent infectious disease specialist. It drew in the Gates Foundation. It drew in some of the United States' preeminent medical schools and hospital groups and vaccine trial groups. And that provided a bridge between the United States and South Africa that continues to this day. There was an enormous sharing of health systems uh, training, of the development of programs to speed and of local pharmaceutical capacity. On the other hand, it also left a legacy of rapid crisis response vertical programming and a real difficulty with integrating a broader array of health systems responses to a crisis. So for example, people might get access to ARVs and they might have excellent follow-up treatment for living with HIV, but they might have very poor treatment for tuberculosis. They might not have proper food. Then their water systems might still not be adequate. And they might also be facing the scourge of gender-based violence, which in itself is one of the causative aspects of HIV. And that is the situation that South Africa lives with, a very, very uneven, often excellent mixed with extremely compromised responses to health crises. So in the first few months, as South Africa was beginning to realize between December and February that a global epidemic was on its way again, this in the form of a coronavirus, the country's new leader, Sul Ramaphosa, who had taken over from a discredited president, Jacob Zuma, just a few months before, he decided to commit the country 100% and fully to a scientific response that would be mixed with compassion and with assistance for people who were vulnerable. 
And it's been a tremendous thing to watch, I have to tell you. I believe that you will see from leading journals like The Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, the WHO, the Centers for Disease Control, and some of the United States' leading political commentators in newspapers like the New York Times. South Africa has been commended for its extremely speedy, coordinated, and very carefully thought through response, particularly the first couple of weeks of the country's lockdown uh, towards the end of March, produced excellent results and definitely halted the community spread of the epidemic. It also allowed hospitals and other infrastructure to prepare themselves, and it allowed the state and civil partners and NGOs to work on anti-stigmatization. Unfortunately, this has not led in the second phase of the lockdown to a sustained effort. Again, the old ruptures and the divisions between people along particularly class but also race lines have pushed their way into public observation. People who are the poorest, people working in informal sector jobs, uh, people working in domestic service, people working as nurse aides and cleaners and in the service sector have not been able to sustain their incomes and livelihoods, even with the state providing some assistance to the most vulnerable families. And this has begun to result in social unrest and in people uh, really questioning whether the state's tactics were correct or not. There's also been heavy-handedness from police and from militarized forms of urban governance. And this has resulted in poorer people uh, coming up against uh, very, very armed and often um, police acting without due regard for people's democratic rights. And so we're sitting in the second phase of our lockdown with many questions being asked about whether we followed the correct protocols. But one thing that is absolutely clear is that nobody questions the existence of this pandemic and nobody rejects the role of scientists in advising the state and in drawing on the expertise of community health workers, of tracing systems, of contact tracing. There's a lot more trust about that. And there remains a very high level of trust in what the pharmaceutical industry might be able to bring with antibody tests possibly in the future and with ventilators in our clinical wards and with prevention measures. In the future, if a vaccine is made available, I do believe that South Africa's uh, clinical science expertise will be able to offer local testing and capacity rollout if it's available of a vaccine. And I do believe that there will be con a continuation of a high level of trust in at least those aspects of the scientific state system. And these are all learnings that came to South Africa through the HIV pandemic. What remains a huge and wretched area of trauma and suffering in our society is why, once again, those people who are the poorest also are the likeliest to get the sickest in the society. They're the most likely to live also with uncontrolled diabetes or poorly controlled and managed tuberculosis and with other comorbidities, including non-communicable disease burdens. And these, of course, include also nutrition and employment strains and also care for not only the children that one may be the biological parents of, but the children of other family members who are destitute, who are unable to help with the care for the elderly or the young. So South Africa has not erased the structural problems completely that we inherited in 94. But we have learned from the HIV pandemic to weigh the advice 
of particularly public health officials. And we have a much more robust public health system than we did 25 or 30 years ago. South Africans are entitled to health, they're entitled to vaccines, they're entitled to treatment, and they regard health as a right, as a constitutional right. And this is tremendously baked into our national psyche, which is completely different from where we were 30 years ago. And we're much more nimble as a society in being able to respond to the, for example, need for solidarity across class and across race than we were. So we have learned a huge amount from the HIV pandemic. Kath, you've told us about the historical legacy of apartheid and of the HIV AIDS epidemic. Are there other factors that are influencing South Africans and the experience of COVID-19 now? Yes, there are. I'm sorry to tell you that the global economy is deeply connected to the South African economy at this moment, possibly on the side of bad rather than good. We know that we're all part of a globalized and interconnected world, but the emerging economies and the vulnerable currencies of which the South African case is one are really taking a hammering, partly because of trade wars, partly because the um, idea that gold is a good place to protect your resources has diminished and partly because of the faltering price of oil. For these and many other reasons, South African exports are under strain and our currency is being devalued every day. Our local stock market is on its knees and this includes the minerals that we extract and that we depend upon for our international trading survival. And this means that the South African government is not able to guarantee that it can continue to support South Africans with grants to help them through this period of unemployment. The South African economy has been extremely badly hit by, by now nearly three months of uh, lockdown in various forms to various industries. And because community spread has begun, Despite our lockdown, particularly in communities of South African miners, underground miners, gold miners, platinum miners, coal miners, and also in communities where most of the employment is in the service sector, we now have a double crisis. Our economy is in a downward spiral. Unemployment is at an extremely high level. We don't see any resolution of that in the near future. We have a particularly bitterly cold winter hitting the country at the moment. We have temperatures of around zero, which in South Africa is catastrophic because our housing is not up to scratch with indoor or protected heating. And so we're entering into a flu season. And although we do have access to public health rollouts of flu vaccine, this is going to be a very heavy burden on people exposed to COVID-19. And then on top of all of this, we have another really, really difficult few months ahead of trying to weather out some of the uh, fullest effects as the epidemic begins to spread. We are only beginning to rise in uh, exponential numbers, and we expect that we might not see a decline or a flattening in our curve until possibly the end of August. This is what our epidemiologists and statisticians are saying. So we have another two months of extreme fraught community engagement and the building of relations between the scientific community, people involved in labor planning and people involved in state spending. So we are not out of the woods yet at all. It seems such a mix of hopefulness on the one hand and um, hard times coming. That is what South Africa seems to always be like. 
this bittersweet mixture of of such hope and solidarity and, and such challenge and difficulty. Thank you, Kath, very much for sharing all this information with us, and we certainly wish you the best in the months ahead. Thank you. It's been an honor speaking to you. Thank you very much. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine, and I'm Lawrence Kessler, a program coordinator at the Consortium. You can find other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as other opportunities to connect to our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation. Thank you for listening.